My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. I'm also one of the editors of the Disarm, Defund, Dismantle, Police Abolition in Canada book. The book itself came out of the organizing that exploded in 2020 and 2021 following the police murder of George Floyd and also the context of COVID-19. Many people were talking about abolition and there were people across so-called Canada. That's the voice of Abby Stadnick. She and Ellie Attaker are today's guests on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. In 2020, North America saw the beginning of a massive uprising against anti-black racism and police violence. Sparked most directly by the police murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, but also a product of the highly inequitable hardships of the then-new COVID-19 pandemic, the uprising soon became most clearly associated with the slogan, Defund the Police. It was one of those moments where a movement catalyzed a rapid and previously unthinkable transition in mainstream opinion. And within other social movement contexts, politics critical of the cops were taken up and centered more broadly than ever before. This moment was only possible because of long-standing traditions of police and prison abolitionist organizing that have played out over decades through many different groups and projects, mostly grounded in communities of people who are most likely to be at the receiving end of the harms of policing and prisons. In Canada, the abolitionist work over the last two years has taken many different forms. Not only have there been campaigns, unfortunately mostly so far unsuccessful, to reduce the budgets of police forces, but also massive mutual aid projects. Resistance within prisons, as always terrible conditions, got worse in the context of COVID. Campaigns for decarceration as a COVID safety measure, and efforts to uncover the histories of abolitionist struggles and think through abolition in the context of specific geographies, communities, professions, and movements. At the invitation of Kevin Walby, a criminology scholar and abolitionist organizer, a number of people active in this work across Canada came together to produce a book. It was intended as a way to record and to celebrate the heightened resistance in this moment, a way to share lessons, and a way to provide a space to deepen the radical thinking that has been so much a part of this movement. The collection that resulted is called Disarm, Defund, Dismantle, Police Abolition in Canada. It's edited by Shiri Pasternak, Kevin Walby, and Abby Stadnick, and published by Between the Lines. There's going to be a virtual launch event for the book at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on April 14th. Stadnick is a white settler writer and organizer living in Amiskwachi, Wiscaigan, also known as Edmonton, Alberta. Her understanding of policing and prisons was radicalized through learning from the sharp anti-colonial analyses of the mostly indigenous men that she got to know initially as a volunteer writing teacher in prisons. She's currently a member of Free Lands, Free Peoples, an indigenous-led anti-colonial abolitionist group based in Edmonton. Ellie Attaker works with Maggie's Toronto Sex Worker Action Project, one of Canada's oldest sex worker justice organizations. She identifies her abolitionist politics as coming from direct experiences of state violence and from the ceaseless need to organize in support of friends, family, and co-workers targeted by the state. Stadnick is, as I said, one of the editors of the collection, and both Stadnick and Attaker are co-authors of contributions to the collection, which they talk about in the interview. 
From the vantage point of 2022, the breathtaking momentum of the initial uprising has long since receded. Stadnik warns of possibilities of backlash and crackdown. Attaker points out the need for ongoing political work within abolitionist organizing spaces, particularly because so many continue to exclude or marginalize sex workers. But looking back over the last two years, abolitionist organizing in the Canadian context has resulted in more people engaged in more projects of all the kinds already mentioned and more, a greater reach for both broad sentiment critical of the police as well as deeper abolitionist ideas, and greater interconnection across local abolitionist work in different cities. I speak with Stadnik and Attaker about abolitionist organizing in Canada and about the new book, Disarm, Defund, Dismantle. Hi, my name is Abby Stadnik. I'm a white settler. I'm a writer. I'm living currently in Amiskwichi, Wasquegan, which is the Cree word for what is also known as Edmonton, Alberta. Since 2011, I have taught creative writing inside jails and prisons as a volunteer. So I've been doing that for a long time and building relationships with people, and particularly in the prairie context where I'm located, because of the gross hyper-incarceration of Indigenous people, most of the people I've worked with have been Indigenous people and Indigenous men in particular. From those relationships, I came to understand their very sharp anti-colonial analysis of policing, prisons, also social work. I came to understand that all of those interconnected systems are part of the ongoing genocide of Indigenous peoples in the settler colonial context. That made me really think about, as a white person, what my responsibility is in terms of interrogating, critiquing, and working to dismantle those interconnected systems. And then I also thought about, you know, how do I enact the relational accountability that I have to the people that I've met and worked with inside? One of the ways that I feel like I have been able to do that is as a writer, when COVID-19 first began and I was no longer able to go inside and work with folks inside, I turned my attention to writing for outlets that document prisoner resistance. So my work turned toward supporting and amplifying the voices of people inside who want to make those political critiques and who are in conditions that are extremely repressive to be able to get your story and your word out, your critique is not an easy feat. So I worked with folks inside to document the resistance activities of the last couple of years in prairie prisons. There were a lot of hunger strikes in resistance to the COVID-19 response in prisons. I'm a member of Freelance Free Peoples, which is an Indigenous-led anti-colonial abolition group that started here in Emiskwichi. And I'm also part of the Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Alberta Abolition Coalition. Through Freelance Free Peoples, we did mutual aid support and fundraising for folks inside and people who are recently released. So mutual aid was a huge focus of our work in the early days of the pandemic. And other than that, Freelance Free Peoples is very much focused on public education, particularly around police and prison or penal abolition more broadly. And we've done a number of workshops and things in that regard to try and educate the public on the importance of abolition. I'm also one of the editors of the Disarm, Defund, Dismantle, Police Abolition in Canada book. The book itself came out of 
the organizing that exploded in 2020 and 2021 following the police murder of George Floyd and also the context of COVID-19, which really highlighted and emphasized what we know to be ongoing gross social inequities. Many people were talking about abolition and there were people across so-called Canada who were, in my context anyway, turning more to think about decarceration, thinking more about police violence and resisting police violence. You know, there's been organizing always against the penal system, but I think in that moment, there was a movement across North America that was really quite profound. And many people became interested in abolition, I think, who had never been interested before. But then there are also people who have been doing this work for centuries, if not under the name of abolition per se. In this political moment, there was the development of collectives, relationships, mobilization, organizing across the country. There was the development of, for example, the Abolition Coalition, which brought together organizers, scholars, frontline folks, community organizers from across the country to do work together to mobilize. And so there were development of relationships, at least from a prairie perspective, that I hadn't seen before. And Kevin Walby, one of the editors of this book, brought together a number of people who were involved in that collective organizing across the country and threw out the idea of a book and that it would be good to be able to capture the energy and the momentum of that particular moment in time and to record and to celebrate the resistance. Kevin put a call out, people responded, and then things went from there. My name is Ellie Attiker. I use she, her pronouns, and I work with an organization in Toronto called Maggie's Toronto Sex Workers Action Project. Maggie's is one of Canada's oldest sex worker justice organizations. We're a buy-in for organization that does a wide range of support work and advocacy for sex workers, including street outrage, the distribution of harm reduction supplies and materials, as well as like social, political, legal advocacy for sex workers across Toronto and the GTA. When I think about my own political development, I think a lot of my politics came through direct response and mobilizing to situations that myself and people in my community face directly. And so I think I identified with the language of abolition before I knew that was even a word. And for folks at Maggie's too, I think one of the things that's really important from the perspective of sex worker justice movements is the ability to speak collectively and speak to like the collective experiences of sex workers in community. At Maggie's, through our history and for sex workers in so many different communities, a lot of our organizing has happened and come from a place of necessity. And a lot of our politics and the political development has also sort of come from a place of necessity and organized response to criminalization, to violence and to erasure. Not only at the level of like the state, through the criminal justice system, through police and courts, but also erasure within progressive spaces, within feminist movements and organizing, within anti-poverty movements. Some of the sex worker stigma and resentment that thrives in social movement spaces as well. The perspective of sex workers in social movement work is really important because of the unique space that so many sex workers and sex worker justice organizations find themselves in being incredibly isolated and having to respond to very like pressing and particular forms of crisis and violence that are specifically leveled at sex workers.
through the pandemic, some of the things that we've been able to do through Maggie specifically target the needs of sex workers who found themselves navigating, you know, the impact of COVID-19 being publicly characterized through like our political leadership, through police and courts and the press as these like public health threats, and us having to respond directly to that. So organizing like our own mutual aid funds, We ran queer trans virtual strip clubs for black sex workers who were able to work and generate income and also contribute to a black sex worker emergency survival fund for folks. We've been running like food security programs and for about two years now delivering regular food boxes to hundreds of people in community who otherwise wouldn't be able to access those resources and often struggle to access basic resources and supports, let alone government aid or emergency support because of how heavily criminalized, but also how heavily stigmatized sex work is. I just think that there's something that's really important about political development that happens in this particular context that comes from a place of understanding like the violence of the state, like the violence of police and the violence of the criminal justice system through a place of direct experience with it and having to organize to support friends, family, co-workers in the absence of support from literally anyone else, from state actors, from social workers, from healthcare providers, but also a lack of support and erasure from other activists as well. And so I guess my own personal political development is really born from that place. And Abby, as one of the editors, give listeners a quick overview of the Disarm, Defund, Dismantle Police Abolition in Canada collection. It's a mix of people in the book. Some are writing as academics. Some are writing as folks with firsthand experience. And I'm not trying to create those as mutually exclusive categories. The book has both a very grounded grassroots aspect, as well as some chapters that are written by academics who have done research in these areas. To me, one of the special things about the book is that you hear specific examples of creating those anti-colonial, non-carceral worlds that we want to see, those worlds of care and compassion. There's so many examples in this book of that mutual aid and support from within communities that I think is really important. And I think many of the chapters speak powerfully to how people, and particularly within communities that have never been served by police and prisons and who have been violently harmed by those institutions, are actually taking care of themselves and each other anyway already. This book provides concrete examples of people who are creating those alternative worlds outside of the system. So I'm thinking of a chapter like Vicky Chartrand's chapter, which talks about her Unearthing Justices project, which takes stock of all of the many, many ways in which Indigenous communities across the country have responded to the violence against Indigenous women and the murder and disappearance of Indigenous women since contact recording the various ways in which communities are enacting justice for themselves because the cops have not shown interest in assisting their communities when women go missing or disappeared or are murdered, but the communities step up and do their own work for themselves. The book also does theoretical work around combating deep-seated narratives or mythologies around the police, you know, the idea that police keep us all safe when we know very well that police function to keep a certain portion of society safe, you know, the white middle class, property interests, corporations, etc. But Black people, Indigenous people, people of color, poor people, disabled people, migrants, 
the police actively work against those communities and work to displace and fragment those communities. And so there are some powerful chapters that take a look at those mythologies and how those mythologies about police function to naturalize police in our society. There are chapters on social work. Those chapters, I think, are particularly interesting in terms of disrupting cherished ideas about care work and drawing attention to the long colonial legacy of social work and also the continuing white supremacist functioning of social work and how, generally speaking, it works to fragment and fracture and dismantle Black, Indigenous and other minoritized communities. Talk about the specific pieces that each of you co-authored. Myself and my co-author, Jenny Duffy, who is the board chair at Maggie's, we submitted a piece that was specifically talking about some of the search parties that Maggie's organized in response to the disappearance of Alora Wells, who was a community member who attended our drop-in programming and had built a lot of really solid relationships with folks at Maggie's. We talk a lot about the process of Alora's disappearance and being alerted to the fact that Alora had disappeared, trying to raise that disappearance and her disappearance with the Toronto police so that they would open a missing persons investigation or even start just looking for her in July and August of 2017. And when they refused to do that and said a bunch of incredibly transphobic, anti-sex worker, like racist things, we took it upon ourselves to coordinate our own search parties and continuously try to push the police to even open a missing persons investigation. It came out in November of that same year that the entire time the Toronto police had actually had Alora's body in their custody, but weren't piecing together the fact that like there was this unidentified body that they'd had and this missing persons case that people were flagging to them. And so we faced all these barriers from the Toronto police around her identity as a sex worker. Well, she's trans, she's Black and Indigenous, she's living in encampments and precariously housed. Some of the pushing that we did for community to say Alora's name, to put her image out there, to try and find her, actually garnered enough public support to pressure the Toronto police to open a missing persons investigation And I would say it's one of the few times where in like the public and through press, sex workers have really had the upper hand in terms of naming not only the violence of Toronto police who have a very particular form of violence they target sex workers with in the downtown East End because of a lot of the gentrification. They're trying to clear a lot of poor working class racialized sex workers out of that area specifically to bring in new developments. But us continuously pushing for Alora to be found incited so much public disgust at the behavior of Toronto police that eventually they were pressured to open a missing persons investigation and did end up making that connection in November of 2017 about the body they'd had in custody. And it was significant for us because the fact that there was any body pushing back against that idea that you don't need to look for sex workers who go missing, that you don't need to look for people who are homeless, who disappear, who stop answering their phones and stop connecting with friends and family, I think was a really significant and important moment and also offered people and community a sense of closure once we discovered what had happened and were able to really lay Laura to rest. The piece also talks about the broader context of what it is to be a sex worker in Toronto's downtown East End specifically. 
one of the points that our chapter makes, not only about the state of policing and the state of the criminal justice system, but also about like the state of most social movement organizing, abolition organizing, and activism in our city and abroad as well, is that sex workers are a very important piece of much of this work, despite being so excluded from many of these spaces. And one of the things that we really push to do is to think about people who are engaged in organizing and activism to really like interrogate the politics of their organizing spaces around how sex workers are treated in those spaces and the public positions on sex work that many of these organizations take and really resisting the idea that sex workers are meant to be excluded or saved or put through this process of like social work. Because a movement for abolition or a movement against police brutality or police violence is nothing without sex workers who are essentially ground zero for so much of this violence, especially if we're talking about Black and Indigenous sex workers in Toronto's downtown East End. Our chapter by Freelance Free Peoples is called A Brief Introduction to Anti-Colonial Abolition. It's part of the work that we're doing to theorize from our specific prairie location, a prairie specific and an anti-colonial specific understanding of abolition. Lots of people talk about abolition as requiring a sort of imagining otherwise or an imagining of worlds beyond the one in which we live. And from our perspective, anti-colonial abolition is also about, as one of my comrades, Molly, likes to say, it's also about sort of remembering otherwise, particularly for Indigenous peoples. And again, I'm not Indigenous, so I'm not speaking from that perspective, but speaking from what I've learned about remembering and enacting Indigenous justice traditions in the Treaty 6 context and Métis homeland context that I'm in. Laws like the Cree law of Wakotun, which is the interrelationality, the interrelatedness of all things, of all beings, human and more than human that's a fundamental principle of Cree and Métis understandings of the world. And it's a fundamental justice principle that asks us to think about our relational accountability to all other people and more than human beings, to the land, to the sky, to the water, etc. When we think about abolition and trying to formulate an anti-colonial perspective, it's about remembering and honoring those prior and ongoing because you know people are enacting those laws all the time in resistance to the settler colonial state. Of course, the current penal system, policing and prisons, social work, etc., that's all a colonial imposition on Indigenous peoples. My comrade Corey Cardinal called the prison system ongoing genocide of Indigenous peoples. It's that imposition of a foreign system that displaces and contains and works quite literally in the context of COVID and otherwise to kill Indigenous people. So we look at the history of that colonial system and how it's been imposed. And then we end the piece by talking about ongoing resistance by Indigenous peoples and the ways that resistance movements, I don't know, more land back, road blockades, the stopping of railway distribution of goods, etc. Like those are not just protests that oppose the state. They're also an embodiment of Indigenous justice and practice. They're an embodiment of that Indigenous ethic of care and valuing of relational accountability. What's your sense of the big picture of the accomplishments, limitations, challenges of defund and abolitionist organizing in Canada since 2020? 
A lot of abolitionist organizing happens by necessity in very local ways. But while preserving the local specificity, we've seen a connection across the country of people doing abolitionist work in a way that I hadn't seen before. I think the explosion of public education materials, both in the States and in Canada, if people go to the website noprisons.ca, you'll see there's a lot of 101 type resources. So that public education work is key. My sense is that there are many more people in the general public now who have thought about, who have heard of defunding the police, um, dismantling the police. They may have various access to the deeper ideas involved in the movement, but people do have more education now and more interest and more enthusiasm to sort of find out and get involved and start something locally. I mean, our group just started from a few people who came together and wanted to see what we could do. And hopefully more people are inspired to do that sort of work in support of their own communities. The danger, of course, is the backlash and the repressive crackdown that seems to always happen after these sorts of big moments where it seems like there's a shift. And then, of course, the settler colonial machine finds a way to incorporate that shift and make it serve their own agenda. I think we have to be wary of that. My experience in organizing over the years, and especially doing work specifically with and for sex workers, has shown me that this organizing and these movements of resisting police violence and state terror and thinking about abolition have existed here for so long. There have been like really important strides made in highlighting the reality and the impacts of police violence specifically. One thing that we've really struggled with in recent history, especially in sex worker justice spaces, is highlighting the realities of that violence and the significance of that violence when it happens specifically to sex workers. Not only to the public and through press, because there seems to always be this sort of idea that sex workers are deserving of the violence that we're targeted with. But I think one thing we've really struggled with from just the perspective of sex worker justice organizing is highlighting to broader activist communities that our lives also matter and that it's important to have that analysis of sex worker solidarity and sex worker justice in any movement for Black liberation, for queer and trans liberation, anti-poverty work. But I also think that there have been a lot of really important strides that sex workers specifically have made in building community showing up for one another in the absence of support and often actually not even just the absence of support, but the presence or increase in public scrutiny in criminalization through police, the courts, bylaws and federal regulation around sex work, but also this erasure from activists and social movement spaces as well. Dealing with a lot of that has pushed many sex workers and many sex worker justice spaces to sort of fill in those gaps on our own. There's been so much incredible mutual aid work through the pandemic. I see a lot of hope and I see a lot of strength in sex worker communities to resist state violence and to resist some of the stigma and the erasure that comes from public spaces, from social movement spaces. But I also really see a need for our movements across the board, for Black liberation movements, for organizing around queer and trans rights, anti-poverty organizing and harm reduction advocates. Like I, I see a need for there to be a much stronger analysis and interrogation of the anti-sex worker sentiments that thrive in social movement spaces. 
You have been listening to my interview with abolitionist organizers Abby Stadnick and Ellie Attaker about the new book Disarm, Defund, Dismantle, Police Abolition in Canada, edited by Shiri Pasternak, Kevin Walby, and Abby Stadnick, and published by Between the Lines. Look online to learn more about the virtual launch event for the book happening on April 14th. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.